0: Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, a non-denominational evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me into a deep dive into the history of Christianity, into the history of the Bible, the biblical canon, where tradition came from what tradition was, and where the early church started and went from there, and who were these early church fathers, and how did the early Christians worship? In that journey, I bumped into the Catholic Church and Catholic theology, and it was then, as I began to read from what Catholics actually believed, from actual Catholic sources, it was then that I realized that what I thought I knew about Catholicism was oftentimes based on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that exact same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I sit down with one of my favorite guests of all time, Rod Bennett. Talk about the early church. Rod's written one of the seminal books on this topic, Four Witnesses, where he digs into the, the first four early church fathers. Those writers who lived right after the New Testament period, who, in most cases, knew the apostles and wrote about the church and about Christian life and theology and wrote to each other and other churches, and it's fantastic stuff. Rod has mined this stuff, mined the early church, the early church fathers, and given us all kinds of fantastic books on the subject, and he's here this week to talk about that with us. Rod is one of my favorite guests, and it's a great conversation about what the early Christians believed, what the very first Christians who followed the New Testament period of time, what they actually believed and practiced, and how they lived. And please listen all the way to the end, because Rod's got a fantastic challenge, a real zinger for those non-Catholic Christian listeners to really challenge their faith, your faith, your perspective on the early church. It's great. It's it's. Humble, it's gracious, but it's a real zinger of a challenge. <laughs> Just like Rod. He's a great guy and this is a great episode. Conversations like this one are brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordial catholic. If you can help support this show, even a dollar or two a month goes a long way to helping to keep this thing going and keep this thing growing. If you can give $5 or more a month, you are enter into draws for free books every single month. Thanks to those already supporting the show, and if you want to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Without any further ado, here's my fantastic episode, My Conversation with Rod Bennett on Early Christians. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. We're talking about the early church this week, and I'm joined again by one of my favorite people to talk to. And it's been a minute, but I'm so glad to have him back on the show. I'm talking about Rod Bennett. Rod is the author of some of the best Catholic books out there, including Bad Shepherds, The Dark Years in Which the Faithful thrived While the Bishops Did the Devil's Work, The Apostasy That Wasn't, The Incredible True Story of the Unbreakable Early Church, Four Witnesses, The Early Church in Her Own Words, and Coming in 2021, I'm Thrilled to Say, For More Witnesses. Rod, thank you for being here, welcome back to the show, and hello
1: hello keith i'm very happy to be back it's uh, i've enjoyed our previous talks and happy to be here <laughs>
0: well I'm thrilled to have you it 's been a while but I'm happy to welcome you back on the show for this topic because this this topic and and your fantastic book for witnesses in particular is one of those books that, and one of those topics, I should say, that always comes up in in so many conversion stories. People talk about encountering the early church and often encountering it in some part, some way, shape or form, through your book, Four Witnesses, and finding the Catholic Church in the early church. And in so many conversion stories, my own included, yours included, of course, it's it's a, a large part. It plays a huge role in that conversion, finding out that the early church looks a lot like the Catholic Church, and then drawing some conclusions from there. But I wonder if we can start with a bit from your story. And I'm curious to know for you, because for me, as an evangelical, the early church for me meant the Church of Acts. And we see in in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, we see a church that looks kind of disjointed and kind of separate little groups of Christians meeting kind of in secret and well, I don't know, no real structure or authority system, and certainly not the the hierarchy that the Catholic Church uh, embodies now. I I wonder for you, what was your picture of the early church before you became Catholic, before you begin digging into these witnesses? What did the early church look like for you, Rod?
1: I don't know that I had a a, a well-drawn mental image of it. I uh, picked up, you know, a few things. On the whole, I think most evangelicals pick up the idea that you can't really know anything about it uh, for some long time. I uh, I talk about it in one spot. I talked about it as a gap theory. The idea that between, you know, the end of the book of Acts and the, uh, you know, maybe the Council of Nicaea in 325, there's just kind of a, a dark continent where everybody, uh, you know, kind of guesses at and, and, speculates on what the early church was like. I had a very definite sense that uh, there weren't any records, so nobody could know. Uh, That certainly was implied by the fact that uh, everybody that I knew always uh, seemed to put forward the idea that we, we need to try to get things back to the way they were in the early church, but nobody ever suggested going and looking at the records to see what the early church was like. We sort of assumed... That it was like our church and, uh, and therefore we, we, uh, used the the dark continent that I mentioned. We used it as a blank slate and, uh, felt perfectly free to, uh, to pencil in our own speculations, I suppose.
0: So, uh,
1: uh, yeah, I had a definite feeling that, uh, uh that it was a, a blank spot on the map and was quasi aware, I guess, of the fact that most of us, uh, uh, used it as a, a a projection screen for us to uh, use our own imagination on, if you see what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because even for, in my experience, in churches that would claim to be like the early church or claim to be trying to recapture the spirit of the early church— I don't think that there was much digging into what the early church actually believed or what the spirit of that church was. It was more, we'll look at the Acts of the Apostles, and we see the church breaking bread together. We see them sharing things in common and gathering to sing songs and to hear uh, the apostles speak. I mean, if you dig a bit below the surface there, you do see that there is some hierarchy. There are There is an actual council that takes place in the pages of Acts of the Apostles, but we wouldn't ever have thought, well, we should go back to church councils, right?
1: Right. Well, it, it's once you once you uh, take the blinders off a little, you begin to see real authority. I mean, the letters of Paul are very, very insistent on the idea that an apostle has authority and that he, he has, his teaching is from God, and therefore it can't be questioned any more than Christ's teaching can be. Jesus, you know, said, whoever hears you hears me, and Whoever rejects me, you rejects me and him who sent me. And then we see Paul talking about it. You know, if you ever hear a different brand of gospel being taught besides the one that we taught to you, then even if an angel comes or what seems to be an angel comes and teaches a different gospel than the one you've heard from us, then let him be anathema. So that's that's pretty strong, authoritative stuff. The the idea that there was authority in the early church, at least while the apostles were with us, uh, is uh, you know there on the surface. You don't have to read between the lines for that.
0: Likely, likewise, the case of I mean, who succeeds these apostles? Because for me, it was a shock. I I can picture very clearly in one of my non denominational churches that I attended as a as a non Catholic Christian. Hearing this joke made about Matthias, this apostle who was appointed to succeed Judas and then kind of vanished from the face of the earth. Well, of course, he vanished because in this church we read the New Testament and that was the the sum total of our picture of the early church. Of course, church tradition... Outside of, you know, if, if you read from, from more documents than just the New Testament, you see that there was actually a tradition of where Matthias went and who he ministered to and, and what he didn't and who succeeds him, right? So it was a very narrow reading of the history of the early church.
1: Even You, at, you don't have to reach as deeply as Matthias of the list of the twelve apostles were given. Uh, at least half of them are only mentioned once in, in the list. <laughs> so, uh, uh, they vanished just as thoroughly as, uh, as Matthias, and they were definitely, uh, among the twelve. So, uh, yeah, the sense that, uh, that the New Testament, uh, tells us the whole story. I mean, yes, it, it tells what it tells, it tells in a uniquely authoritative way. But the idea that extra biblical necessarily equates to non biblical or unbiblical. Uh, was a leap that we made. The 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 idea that uh, if it's not in the Bible that it didn't happen was something that uh, isn't implied by the uh, by the idea of scriptural authority, and uh, it's something that I was able to, thank goodness, see pretty quickly that uh, that uh, you know a lot of things happen that don't happen. In the Book of the Acts, for example, the Acts of the Apostles, is not really. A church history book i mean it it has church history in it but it it doesn't if you for those who 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 have read it and i'm sure most of our listeners have uh it, it it a better title might be the adventure the early adventures of peter and paul about half of it is peter and then it switches completely over to paul and leaves peter completely alone so uh it's a very odd book and it doesn't seem to be the purpose of it it's odd if you look if you try to look at it as the history of the early church it's the history of two very narrow aspects of the early church and uh you know once you realize that you realize there must have been a lot more going on and uh, not just things we can deduce from the uh Epistles of Peter and Paul.
0: Yeah, and like you say, when you begin to take those blinders off of how you have as as an evangelical, as a Protestant Christian, read the Bible for maybe all your life, when I when I first began to, to attempt to to look at a different paradigm of reading the Bible, and those blinders began to come off. You see things, as I mentioned, like like councils, and as you said, the the authority of, of Peter and Paul, and the succession of of their authority and how it's passed on. You begin to see these things I- existing, and and we hear about in the New Testament these ideas of of bishops and these different uh, levels of authority and different uh, classes of of people serving in the churches. These things, I mean, and for goodness sake, you look at a very literal view of of the Eucharist, which is clearly there in the pages of the New Testament. Paul mentions it as well, quite literally. But you don't see these things when you're wearing a certain kind of lens. Uh, the early church looks different through through, say, Protestant lenses than it does when you began to begin to try and see things a bit differently, right?
1: Well, yeah, we a lot. Dep- what you see depends a lot on our expectations and. Uh you uh, uh you know it, it takes a certain mental effort to uh, uh, you know to look to wrench yourself out of that one particular way of looking at things and and try another uh, man's pair of moccasins on for a while <laughs> and uh, and that i really i suppose is what we're asking for uh, uh, the thing that helped me uh was that uh, my eyes were open to looking at different uh, approaches by the fact that i got interested in C.S. Lewis, who, as many people know, was sort of a gateway drug to uh, writers like <laughs> G.K. Chesterton, and then from Chesterton on to John Henry Newman. So I took a, a, a pretty well-worn path for a certain class of uh, converts who started with Lewis. But, uh, uh, but Lewis alone, as a somewhat high Anglican, although he wouldn't, he didn't like party labels. His, he, he believed in purgatory and honors to the Blessed Virgin, and real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the rest of it. So he, he, he his Anglicanism was on the Catholic side. Uh, just reading Lewis as I did so avidly, I mean, Lewis was very central to my reversion, I suppose, back to Christianity, period. I, I was raised in an evangelical church. And had some very early, beautiful experiences with Christ as a, a young, as a child and as a young teenager. And then, you know, got older and like a lot of older people went out into the world, joined the military, went out in the world and sowed my wild oats, you know. But when it was time to think about questioning what I was doing and coming back, C.S. Lewis was instrumental for me. And uh there's enough of Catholic uh, theology in Lewis to make a person go, well gee, I'm not used to hearing that from a Protestant, or I'm not used to having that explained in that way by somebody that my evangelical uh, elders approve of so so Lewis really was a, a, a door into let's just say I had Catholic ideas about the Eucharist about salvation, about the nature of the church the uh, bishops and the authority that comes from the early church, things like that. Many of my first Catholic ideas were taught to me by a uh, somewhat imperfect Catholic uh, of the Anglican stripe, and uh, that was C.S. Lewis. So, uh, 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 and that, again, was just the beginning for so. So he opened the door for me. So when I say I took blinders off or something, I mean, maybe that's too strong a way to say it, but I just... I, I got in with somebody that I loved and trusted enough that I was able to be patient and listen to Christian theology that I had been taught to avoid in the past and uh, uh, you know again God God bless uh, whoever whatever gatekeeper decided that C.S. Lewis could come into evangelicalism, <laughs> because, because that was a bad misstep if you, uh, uh, if you wanted to keep all your people reliably uh, uh, low-church uh, evangelicals. <laughs> but, but God bless whoever did it. <laughs>
0: Well, that's a great point, because even for me, I mean, I I had Carlo Broussard from Catholic Answers on this show a while back talk about his book on purgatory, and I mentioned how C.S. Lewis, for me, The Great Divorce was a gateway drug into purgatory for me, because of course, as an evangelical, there's nothing at all in our theology that accounts for purgatory, yet here was C.S. Lewis describing very eloquently this idea of a, of a purgatorial situation, which, which made a lot of logical sense to me, and just resonated right. in my heart quite deeply, and I thought, well, I have nothing like this in in my theology, right? He
1: he also defended uh, prayers for the dead and uh, all sorts of other uh, very dicey things that uh, would set off would have would certainly have set off alarm bells in my church. But uh, uh, but again, they had, somebody had decided that I had permission to read him, so I did.
0: <laughs> Snuck in the back door. Right. So <laughs> we we talk about the early church and. We you talk in in your first book, Four Witnesses, about these witnesses, this I these these uh early church figures who kind of revealed to us, I mean, who what happened in the early church and how things were were, were governed and what they believed and how things were structured and what they did and what those early Christians looked like. I, I mean, we talked a minute ago about the idea of this stuff being lost in the sands of time. That's kind of the the narrative that that I inherited as an even juggle, and you mentioned it earlier. We we can't know these things; they're kind of lost to us in this this dark continent, as you put it so well. Who were these witnesses that you found that that began to shed some light on the early church?
1: Well, the, the 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 thing that was unique about what happened to me was that I didn't find a list of names and then go looking for the books. I was rooting around one afternoon in the back of a, of a really good uh, evangelical Christian bookstore in Atlanta, where I lived at the time. And way back in the back, there was this big set of uh, hardbound volumes. It looked like an encyclopedia. It looked like an encyclopedia Britannica, this large shelf full of uh, full of books. And the, top, the set was called the Anti-Nicene Fathers and I thought well who who the heck are they you know and once again that they, they these guys were in an evangelical bookshop so whoever <laughs> whoever let that particular title into the into the evangelical bookstore did me a favor <laughs> but uh there they were now they were published by a protestant publisher an anglican or episcopal publisher in America so technically they were protestant books so that it, that was while I was willing to uh, take a peek. But uh, I got presented with the moment that I was aware that there were such peoples as the Church Fathers, I was aware that there were thousands of pages. In other words, I the, the, the instant that I ever heard of any Church Fathers, I was looking at 22 fat volumes of small, fine print in columns. And so I was aware of the fact, oh my goodness, what... <laughs> <laughs> They're saying that these books date from the first 200 years of Christianity, and over. Well, if you go up to the Council of Nicaea, the first 300 years. And so, the minute that I became aware that there were any writings from the early church at all, I was aware that there were thousands and thousands of pages, because there they were. And I, I here, I opened the first volume and became introduced to people like uh, Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch, Irenaeus of Lyon, Tertullian, all the rest of it. And uh, they weren't just names. Here was, it was a fat book full of uh, material that I could look at. And, you know, that's a fascinating idea. I, I do wonder what sort of a Christian could look at a thick book like that and see that it was full of writing from the first century A.D., in other words, the, book, the books of, uh, say, Clement of Rome or Ignatius of Antioch, uh, the, Shepherd of Her- the Shepherd by Hermas may actually have been written, uh, you know, about the same time as the Gospel of John. So the idea that, that any Christian could see a book full of that kind of material and not be fascinated with it, not just have to carry it away and devour it like I did, just makes me wonder. I mean, that's the most interesting thing that I could think of at the time, was hundreds of pages of of writing from the very earliest Christians during a period that I just never dreamed that there was this much testimony, this much uh, material. So, uh, and I've been spending a lot of money on uh, those kind of books ever since. <laughs>
0: So you, I assume you bought this copy or smuggled it out in some way, shape, or form, and I bu-
1: <laughs> Yes, I bought one. I may have snuck it out because I didn't want somebody to see it. But uh, <laughs> no, actually, I was fine. I I did buy at least one volume, and that was off to the races after that.
0: What did you find when you opened that book up? Like, where did you begin, and what was kind of the first thing that you encountered that maybe gave you a bit of pause, if you can remember?
1: Oh well, it's all through it. Uh, uh, I mean, you. That's one of the, the really startling things. You get the book home, and, of course, you're looking for things that sound like your own church at home. I mean, we've all got the idea that, uh, you know, our church. at our church, we just read the Bible. We uh, interpret it plainly and simply without uh, trying to impose our own ideas on it. And we have built a church based on that, that idea, and therefore you ought to be able to find it in the first century A.D., and of course, you couldn't. Uh, I mean, on one page they were talking about uh, uh, baptismal regeneration, you know, the efficacy of water baptism. On another page, they were talking. You know, I mean, all you had to do was just flip through. They're talking about the uh, the elements of the Lord's Supper being a sacrifice, which we definitely didn't hold, and that we uh, uh, that the sacrament was a. Uh, a a medicine of immortality that that taking the sacrament in a faithful way was uh, would strengthen your soul to uh, to pass the test at uh, at the time of death. Uh, I mean, just you could just went down the line. They the, uh, just very one very Catholic sounding idea after another. Uh, things that I had always associated only with with Roman Catholics and these are these early church. Uh, documents were just full of this kind of stuff. Now, uh, I don't want to oversimplify. I don't want any Anglican listener or uh, Eastern Orthodox listener that we may have out there, other representatives of uh, groups that do take the fathers into account in a in a significant way. I don't want them to think that I am oversimplifying uh, the fact that these. Writings led dir- me directly to the Catholic Church in America. Uh, it, it is th- those kinds of questions are more complex, but uh, uh, but the fact that the early church believed the same great body of doctrine that traditional Anglicanism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Western Latin Catholicism, have in common with each other, which is about ninety five points out of a hundred. Uh, that was absolutely blindingly obvious from the books. So, if you begin to read these early fathers, uh, you th- they talk like what we crudely call liturgical Christians. Uh, when I was an evangelical, we they they uh, uh, you know they just weren't evangelical, and that was that was completely obvious from from day one. And that's a problem, of course. I mean, if you go to the—if you suddenly find that you, the early church left records behind, um, and again, it, nobody's saying at this stage in the game that uh, uh, that I had to obey Clement of Rome or Ignatius of Antioch or anything. It wasn't—I wasn't treating them, and, and indeed the church doesn't insist that I did treat them as authority figures, that I have to—that they said it, therefore it's true— no, they just gave testimony. In other words, this was evidence, uh, you know, like the kind of evidence that a, uh, uh, you, you know, if, uh, if the, somebody, an archaeologist discovers, digs down in the earth and discovers, uh, you know, fish bones in, uh, in, a, in an ancient kitchen, then you can deduce that they ate fish in this particular uh, village. And uh, similarly, with the writings of these early fathers, if you find in multiple places that, uh, that these people are saying that baptism washes away sin and that baptism is necessary for salvation, you haven't necessarily proved at that point that baptism washes away sin and is necessary for salvation. But you have proved that people believe that early, early, early in the history of the church. In other words, it was always our contention that these, what we would have called non biblical ideas, devotions to Mary and all these other things, that they had gradually accumulated uh, through the centuries uh, on the church from contact with pagan ideas or, you know, superstition and all the rest of it. They'd gradually accumulated sort of like barnacles on a, a ship. And that uh, uh, when we got to the Reformation, it, we had to scrape the barnacles off to get back to uh, a seaworthy vessel. Well, the trouble was, the, the one thing that the books proved, that the books of the Fathers proved, without much doubt, is that these ideas were there from day one. That they uh, are pretty close to day one, anyway. If you've got a book that was written about the same time as the Gospel of John, then that's close enough to day one for me. Now... <laughs> <laughs> again i'm not saying that i that i had to believe these doctrines because these men taught them but i could no longer believe that these doctrines had been had accumulated over the centuries and and been like barnacles you <laughs> see the, you see the distinction i'm making
0: yes that that's so well said of course <laughs> I want to dig into some of those those different ideas and things that they brought up brought to the fore. and I want to start with with Clement of Rome. can you tell us a bit about who this character was and maybe something remarkable about what he kind of uh brought to the forefront or or made you maybe take notice of that wasn't practiced in in your evangelical sphere of things?
1: Well, the big thing that we get from Clement is we get the idea that the church has a uh structure or a constitution that was built into it by the apostles, and that it's not optional. That there's an apostolic succession. That the apostles, when they were getting old and ready to leave the scene, uh, uh, laid hands on other approved men, as we see the apostle Paul doing to Timothy, uh, that they laid hands on other trained men and conferred their authority that they had received from Jesus to successors, to, uh, to men who were uh, uh, to continue that chain of custody um, through the centuries. Uh, Clement lays out very clearly that uh, the apostles put certain men in charge of the churches and that it's not lawful to break that apostolic succession, to pick leaders that we like better and to, uh, uh, to ordain men who aren't in that apostolic succession. This is very, very clear in Clement of Rome. Clement, by the way, was uh, himself one of the successors. He, uh, he was the, I believe, third successor to Peter as the bishop of the church at Rome. We call him that, thus Clement of Rome. So uh, uh, he... Uh, and seems to have been, uh, although we're not absolutely sure about this, seems to have been ordained to the ministry by Peter himself, of whom he was a contemporary. So uh, that uh, uh, was a tremendous thing to see. The whole purpose of of Clement's letter, he's writing to the church at Corinth, not to his own church at Rome, where at Corinth they were still having uh, schisms, of the type that we see Paul trying to deal with in his uh, epistles, biblical epistles to the Corinthians. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. You know, I'm, choosing up parties uh, was a problem. It was just something in the drinking water, apparently, at Corinth. And so Clement is called upon, as Bishop of Rome, to write to this other church and to say, you, the Corinthians, who had uh, allowed a faction to... Uh, throw out the men of, in the apostolic succession and replace them with people they liked better. Clement writes to him and says, "No, that's invalid. You you can't do that. It's not lawful to uh to eject from the sacred ministry men that were put in uh, in place by the apostles." So, uh that the the great contribution that we get from Clement is the uh, the concept of apostolic succession is laid out very clearly. And uh then of course Ignatius, who was the next maybe the next earliest uh, Christian writer whose works have survived uh, outside the page of the New Testament, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, his letters he, uh, his seven letters that have survived are all about the idea that submission to the bishop, the one ordained by the apostles, is uh, is absolutely necessary in the church. so that that uh, you know that's that's that awful hierarchy, you know, that people are so they don't like that word hierarchy, but there, there it is, really, really early, uh, by people who we think Ignatius was actually baptized by uh, Peter. So uh, uh, certainly Clement is mentioned in the Bible. He's one. He's mentioned as a co-worker of Saint Paul's. So there's uh, there's no gap. And and we and yet we find these men teaching uh, this apostolic succession as a really ironclad principle of the church's constitution.
0: <laughs> I I uh, wrote a, an article once for my blog when I was first looking into the Catholic Church and, and maybe even early in my journey as a Catholic about the one quote that made me Catholic and it was something that Ignatius of Antioch you mentioned wrote about along the lines of you know where the where the where the bishop is there is the church and that as a as a non-catholic christian when i first read that just kind of floored me to think okay how do we figure out what church is the early church and which which church is the right church well ignatius tells us that in the early church it was the bishop that you'd find to figure out where the church was. Right, and right, right. And I later interviewed uh, Dr. John Bergsma on this program as well, with his conversion story. And for him as well, it was one of Ignatius' letters, and a very similar sentiment that he wrote in this other letter, the same idea of, of the Eucharist and the bishop making up the church. That's where you find the church, is where the Eucharist is celebrated and where the bishop is in, in valid succession of the apostles. It, it, neither of those things for dr bergsma he had in his kind of reformed calvinist church he was he was pastoring i think at the time and so like myself you know you encounter these things and and as you're talking about as well you encounter these things that don't look anything like the protestant experience of christianity right here in the very early church the idea of the of of the bishop i mean for one thing is just so foreign to to the evangelical mind. I mean, we have these... I have a good friend who has in his church, his non-denominational church, they have what are called apostolic elders, I think is the term they use. And the idea is that their elders appointed in succession by the previous elders, but their succession is limited to when that church began, say in the 80s or the 90s, because somebody had to start that church, and, and I guess, I don't know, be yeah. the first apostle in, in that situation. There's an, right?
1: awful lot of, uh, an awful lot of reinventing of the wheel that goes on, i found in uh, in in our kind of churches. That we started in a lot of the a lot, they end up reinventing the wheel a lot of times and discovering on their own ideas like apostolicity and uh, bishops in the church and the rest of it. Uh, you know, they re- end up rediscovering it two thousand years later and uh, and never never going back and looking and see if somebody had thought this thought before them. You know. <laughs>
0: Yet, yet, here in the pages of the early church, we see this clear kind of idea of authority that is then passed on, and not only is it is it a succession uh from the apostles it it's where you find the church it's how you find the church identify the church is well where is the bishop who has that succession, and of course, the question then becomes, well, when did that end? When did that idea of finding the church by locating the bishop who has succession and the Eucharist when when did that end? And of course for for yourself and, and for me and someone like Dr. Bergsma encountering this, well, I mean the obvious answer is, well, I don't think it did end, <laughs>
1: right? Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely.
0: So the other idea that I is fascinating that you'd find in the early church is the idea of of this Eucharist. And the idea of, of Eucharistic celebration and a sacrifice and, and the real presence. Again, things we don't have in the same way in the evangelical church. I mean, in my case, in the various churches I have been, been a part of, Baptist and Pentecostal churches and then non-denominational churches, we would celebrate communion, as we called it, and and, and the bread and wine were were symbols, mere symbols. And we'd even read the words uh, that Paul writes about communion and and that did uh, sound very literal but somehow we'd spin them as this is this is symbolic we were handed on this theology of these things being symbolic from somewhere in the murky past we believe that that's how the church kind of always did things but of course you encounter something like someone like justin Martyr, or or who's who's quite clear on this or ignatius of antioch who also writes about this in the early church and i, I wonder if you can paint for us the, the picture that they reveal of of what the Eucharist or what communion was like for the early church
1: well yeah the, as far as that goes I mean the Ignatius sorry not Ignatius Clem, uh, Justin's first apology uh, a letter that he wrote to the Roman Emperor to try to get him to, to ease off and and quit persecuting Christians uh, Justin gives a very full account of what sort of rites are done in the Christian church and uh, one of the things that he gives a thorough account of is a Eucharistic service uh, at church on, uh, on the Lord's Day, and he, he gives a, a, a very full account of how the, the masses were conducted at that time. And, uh, you know, you get uh, the fact that uh, a bread which was not the Eucharist, gets uh, Eucharisticized. I don't know. It's difficult. It's not a real English word, but it's the best uh, way to express the underlying term that Justin uses. He he says the bread gets changed, something that wasn't the Lord's body and also the blood, something that wasn't the Lord's blood before the prayers becomes the body and blood of Christ. And uh, it's, it's... you know, and you mentioned uh, uh, Ignatius, the one who said that it was the medicine of immortality. Uh, there, the, all through the, the, these early apostolic fathers, the, the idea of, of a... a li- I don't want to use the word literal, because that, uh, all, we, all, we all agree that it's a spiritual sacrifice. Nobody's saying that uh, uh, that the Eucharist is the Lord's body in the same way that it was the Lord's body when he was present among us. It is a miraculous expression of the Lord's body, not just symbolic as evangelical churches say but not plain to the eyes either, so so it's it's more, more sophisticated than a lot of evangelicals give us credit for but uh, uh, this is all in the early fathers and uh, very clearly expressed. You, you mentioned a few moments ago that you had spent time in Pentecostal and non-denominational probably charismatic type churches it's interesting that we do I do find that I'm able to get people from those traditions to accept this idea much more clearly and instinctively than people from say this Calvinist tradition and other uh, other groups like that and uh, to some extent I, I've discovered that the, the, we owe we owe a great debt of gratitude to John Wesley for that Wesley is sort of the spiritual uh, progenitor of Pentecostalism, the Holiness Movement, uh, the the 19th century roots of Pentecostalism and Charismaticism. And I have been fascinated to learn in recent years that that Wesley was an unusually high Anglican. He and his brother Charles were essentially Anglo-Catholics 100 years before Newman and the Oxford Movement, and one of the reasons they passed down a much more patristic, much less Calvinistic, and much more, uh, well, there's no other word except Catholic version of Christianity to their followers, much less Gnostic, uh, you know, uh, afraid to let God express himself in material uh, sacraments that uh the reason he was able to pass this down is he himself had kept much closer to the original traditional uh high catholic flavored anglicanism and uh, uh and so uh you know it's it's really interesting that even amongst a a not very pure form of uh of the catholic faith as we find expressed in the uh early anglicanism uh you still find enough of it that it makes a difference even today. That people who who have been the followers of Wesley through the uh, last couple of centuries uh, are find it much easier to understand these ideas. So I hope that's not too much of a rabbit trail. One day I might write a book about Wesley, but uh, <laughs> but his his people on the whole have a, have less of a hard time with uh, uh, with these I- ideas of a sacramental Lord's Supper and the laying on of hands and all the
0: rest. Of <laughs> well, we'll look forward to that book if it ever comes out. It'll be,
1: it'll be fantastic. I, I, would, I wouldn't hold my breath. That sounds like the sort of book that would uh, that would sell about five copies.
0: <laughs> well, I'll buy one. <laughs> I, I think what's what's remarkable for for me and for many, uh, like yourself, maybe reading these early church fathers like Justin Martyr on on the Eucharist is he he's speaking of very clearly the the bread and wine becoming, you know, the flesh and blood of Jesus who was made flesh. I mean, it's, it's, we, we can in, in one sense, uh, and, you know, as Catholics pointed to John 6 as being very important in understanding the Eucharist as the real presence of Jesus. And you, you can kind of avoid that maybe and say that Jesus was speaking maybe in a different way than we, no, not literally, or something, and you get to Paul in in Corinthians talking about the uh, the Lord's Supper being his flesh and blood, and it it seems pretty straightforward. But you can maybe dodge around that somehow, some way. We certainly did as evangelicals, or so just kind of glaze over those passages. But you you get to somebody like Justin Martyr who is speaking quite clearly and very unavoidably about the flesh and blood. Of of the the, the Eucharist uh, being transmuted or or transformed or changed into the flesh and blood of Jesus, and right, it's it's pretty hard to skirt around that evidence from what the early church actually believed, right?
1: Right, it's uh, uh, you know we may uh, be willing to engage in a dialogue with uh, some of the groups who take the real presence in a. Uh, a less traditional way than we do there there's something you can believe that the that the bread and the wine are changed I mean we don't say that the the final finished Catholic formulation of transubstantiation is in the word for word in the first century documents that I mean that that's I want to make people understand we're not we're not overstating the case in that way but uh, uh, definitely you see. The thing being laid out in Catholic terms from the beginning, Catholic terms that only get, uh, better thought out as the next couple of centuries go. And most importantly, we don't find pushback in the East or the West of Christianity in, in those early centuries. We don't find, uh, as, as trans, as we get closer to transubstantiation, uh, over the first couple of three centuries we don't find anybody resisting the developments we find them saying yes this is this is uh, what we've always believed so it, the statements do get fuller and more explicit as time goes on but they uh uh the most significant thing to know about them is you don't get any uh you don't get any contrary voices st- standing up and saying no it's uh, it's symbolic it's you know a purely uh, uh metaphorical uh uh, fleshliness and et cetera, et cetera. You don't find that. It's the it's the church speaking uh, with unanimity that counts for a lot here too.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point because I've argued before with a very good friend of mine who's a non denominational Christian, and we go back and forth on these kinds of topics, and normally get quite heated, and then cool off for a bit, and come back in a couple of months or or, or years to revisit those topics when we've kind of. Come around a little bit, and our our most recent conversation was on the Eucharist, and uh, I was bringing forth some of these quotations from the early church fathers, and he was equally coming back with a list of some other quotations from early church fathers that, that purported to show this idea that, well not all these church fathers agreed with, say, the real presence. And if you read them in the totality of them, what you see is a development away from thinking it was the real presence. Now, of course, I mean, as a Catholic who's, who's read deeply into those things, uh, for me, my response was, come on, are you kidding me? But this seems to be a, a, a live discussion. And I, and I feel like there's a strand out there of Protestant Christianity that, that certainly... And I know this, too, from speaking to people, I mean, Dr. Doug Beaumont is a good friend of this show, and he helped the late Norman Geisler to put together his Systematic Theology textbook, which is widely read by Protestant evangelical Christians. And Doug told me that what how that was put together was essentially just bringing together quotes that seemed to back up the views that that Dr. Geisler was promoting. So there is this strand of Christianity, whether intentional or accidental or you know whether it's misinformation or just simple misunderstanding that that takes these early church fathers on something like the eucharist and kind of picks and chooses things that seem like they're agreeing with the protestant perspective i think you'd argue and i'd argue that taken as a whole the the picture is quite clearly a a a catholic or an orthodox picture of of the eucharist am i right in saying that
1: well, what what I would say is both sides, a- amateur uh, apologists on both sides, just pick and choose their favorite quotes and direct you away from the others. It would be, uh, you'd like to think that Christians would realize that they're being deceitful when they do that, but uh, we don't always, <laughs> we're not always attuned to that. Uh, you know, all seems fair in love and war sometimes. There certainly are passages in the early fathers where, they say something, and we, as Catholics or even Orthodox, might say, "Oh, that seems to give credence to the symbolic uh, interpretation." There's se- several passages in the Fathers where uh, you know they they do seem to be stressing uh, the symbolic to almost to the exclusion at times of the of the other thing. Uh, the the thing is, you do absolutely have to take both things at their Uh, You have to take the entirety, let's say, of Cyprian. We have to take the entirety of what he said on the subject. You can't just pick your favorite parts and edit the rest out. And when we stop doing that, whether Catholic or Protestant, when we stop doing that, we'll start start taking Cyprian's testimony seriously. Why did he seem to say this here? Why does he seem to contradict himself over there? Did he change his mind? Or is it just a really complex subject with a lot of different aspects that are not easy to express without uh, seeming to make missteps from time to time? There are lots of things like that in the early Fathers, where it was early enough in theology that the terms were not all worked out, and and sometimes in trying to express a a really profound idea, uh, the statement taken in isolation might even at times uh sound like uh, it's defective that that it he actually doesn't uh express the Catholic idea. But again, it comes from not uh, uh learning the that particular father's entire testimony on the subject. He uh, uh he, he has a body of thought on the topic and if you put that all together you get the full picture rather than just an isolated uh an isolated statement,
0: and I guess the other thing to, uh, to to note too that I would push back against a little bit on on comments uh, that seem to pick and choose from the church fathers would be: well, these are early church fathers. This is not the magisterium of the church. This isn't what the church teaches in some total. These are early Christians. Some, of course, are are bishops and and popes, even and people in authority, but just finding one quote from any of these church fathers isn't going to give you the full picture of what the church has authoritatively taught or come to believe, right? That's an important thing to to underscore, maybe.
1: Yes, exactly right. They no, None of the individual uh, writers is infallible, and uh, they, they uh, need to be taken as a whole. And the people who do the taking are the officers of the church uh, who express their Conclusions through the voice of a council, or through some, sometimes, occasionally, the uh, the uh, doctrinal definition of uh, a bishop of Rome.
0: <laughs> I remember once I was I was reading, carrying around uh, Irenaeus's Against Heresies, his fantastic uh, large volume of, of writing from the early Church, one of these, you know, huge things that is contained within the early Church Fathers, that you go, wow, this is a <laughs> lot of information, mostly about the, the heretics that existed at the time, right. what, what they taught and believed.
1: Reading all five books of Against Heresies by Irenaeus separates the man from the boys. If you <laughs> if you can read <laughs> four four whole books of mostly dised, disedifying uh, expositions of Gnostic doctrine, uh, then uh you know i did read all five but uh, but i must admit it was a chore and i can't believe it i can't blame somebody if they uh if they skip over something
0: <laughs> well i'm glad you say that because i was carrying around this giant tome of against heresies i didn't read the whole thing i did i also finished it and uh someone said to me oh how's your master's degree going And I said, what master's degree? And they they assumed, because I was carrying around, I was reading the whole thing, they assumed I was working on a master's degree.
1: What what other reason would there be, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, precisely. (laughs) What do we we learn from Irenaeus, which I think is, I mean, if you get through the whole thing, as we did, Well, it is funny funny that uh, uh,
1: for centuries, uh, hostile or unfriendly scholars said, that Ire- Irenaeus's pictures of uh gnosticism were so bizarre and so way out that he's got to be caricaturing it there's he, he it's a hostile account of of what gnostics believe not what they actually believe because how could it be as crazy as this and then the Nag Hammadi library was discovered, which is a large cache of, of Gnostic, an actual Gnostic library that was discovered in recent years. And you don't hear that so much anymore. <laughs> when, when they read the Nag Hammadi books, they said, well, Irenaeus was, it, if anything, <laughs> pretty charitable.
0: <laughs> so we learn a lot from him about what the picture of, of these other... Uh, quasi Christian groups looked like, I think he too has maybe one of the early lists of the popes, if i 'm not mistaken, which I think was pretty informative and uh, and he
1: quotes he quotes a list from another writer, yeah, he does
0: yeah, which for me was was surprising to learn that that at this early date there was a list of popes, and there was this clearly defined you know some kind of special office happening here in Rome, right.
1: Oh right, yeah. I mean, he 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 says, uh, you know, the he's the one I believe who uh, talks about the church founded by the uh, two most uh, powerful apostles, Peter and Paul. And uh, uh, you know, it's definitely uh, Irenaeus has written things that uh, that speak of the uh, need to compare all church doctrine with what the uh, the Church of Rome teaches. So. That uh, uh, that definitely was the case in those days. Whether he meant it as a a, a piece of uh, t- expressed teaching, or whether he meant it just as kind of a good rule of thumb, you know, the Church of Rome has always been a uh, a good touchstone for these things. Uh, you know, is something that isn't deducible just from his own writing. You do have to compare it with what what the other fathers were saying. So, but uh, and that goes back again to the idea of not not really even though it's hard not to do it at times. It's, all of us need to try harder not to cherry-pick uh, the church fathers. I love a good, uh, uh, a good, a good church father quote, but uh, I love it as much as anybody. But, uh, but yeah, I, I do uh, make a conscious effort these days to, uh, to make sure that I don't need to add some other quote of his side-by-side side for, for balance.
0: <laughs> I can remember as a non-Catholic Christian looking into the tradition of of my Sunday morning and why I worshiped the way that I worshiped in a non-denominational, uh, charismatic kind of uh, uh, Christian church, and I remember thinking, you, you know, I, I found nothing in the Bible that supported worshiping the way that I did with, you know, a couple of songs and then a prayer by the worship leader and then another song and then a sermon And you know, once a month, uh, taking communion and then being dismissed, I couldn't find that in the Bible. So I I, I was shocked then to come across in the early church fathers, you know, someone like Justin Martyr and his very clear picture of what the mass looked like. I I was, I, I don't know, shocked to discover that the way the early church worshipped was, I mean, I shouldn't have been shocked, Rod, because they didn't have electric guitars and, and drum kits and PA systems and, <laughs> and smoke machines, and of course they didn't have those things, but but somehow we, we thought that our worship looked like the early church, but here's a, a clear account. I mean, Justin Martyr just spells it out exactly how the, how the Mass went, and gosh, it looks a lot like what a Catholic Mass looks like, even to this day, right?
1: Right. Well, that was a uh, uh that was uh, an assumption that uh, that we very commonly made, that uh, the simpler, uh, and, you know, I mean, the New Testament does talk about worshiping God with spiritual songs and hands raised and all these other things. These are, uh, these are in the Bible, but uh, there was a sense that take a few things like that that are in the Bible and mix them up together in a very simple way, and surely this is what the simple primitive early church looked like without elaborate rituals, which obviously seem to require centuries to evolve, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that, uh, it's almost like we, especially in a non-denominational or Pentecostal or whatever setting, uh, and in that you mentioned the electric guitars and the rest of it, I'm from that generation of the Jesus people and the uh, house churches and all that sort of thing. And we were sort of quasi-consciously saying The simpler, the better, because obviously the church was simple in the early days. And that's why it's so powerful to come across uh, somebody like Justin Martyr, for whom there's already a complex ritual. And uh, the the assumption we were making is just not warranted. The ritual of the church involved the sacrifice, sorry, the ritual of the synagogue, involved sacrifice and uh uh you know elaborate preparations that are spelled out in the uh Pentateuch and uh the idea that uh the church ought to have left ritual and symbolic uh breakings and and cups and all the rest of it we should have left all that behind is a an unwarranted assumption. Jesus was uh a a a a Hebrew he was, uh, uh, and he passed down, changed, and metamorphosized, and transfigured the old rituals. But the idea that ritual itself became uh, needs to be completely left behind, and that it ritual itself is com- is an antithesis to what New Testament worship might be expected to look like is is just is just somebody's guesswork, somebody's uh, uh, presupposition. <laughs>
0: And it's and it's quite uh yeah it's quite interesting to that picture in the early church fathers of how that worship looked like it's kind of uh, uh you know if we're trying to get back to that kind of worship uh it's quite clearly spelled out there and it, unfortunately it looks kind of ritualistic right it,
1: it, absolutely it is literally ritualistic it's a ritual <laughs> and that's but well, one of the things that that our inquirers need to hear us say straight up is you got to expect a paradigm shift here. We believe that Jesus taught a ritual to his disciples. He taught them how to perform a ritual, just the same as Aaron taught the uh, uh, Levites how to do one. It's not exactly the same, but it is in that same tradition. And uh, one of the things that the apostles received from Christ was the uh, the tradition that they learned at the in the pinnacle. Uh, sorry, in the. Uh, in the upper room uh, at the time of the Lord's Supper. the uh, uh, They learned how to say a Mass, and we've been saying it ever since then.
0: Yeah, and of course we mentioned earlier that... It- Read through a particular lens. I mean, these these things become kind of quite obvious. I mean, what's happening in that upper room? If you read that through a, a Jewish lens, you see all these typological and all these very clear indications of, of what's being done here and how this is very much in line with the, with the Jewish sacrificial system. And I mean, Paul, right, The you know, way in
1: which it both is a seder meal, a typical Passover seder meal, but is also different. I mean, that's what we should expect it to be. It is the Jewish Messiah, but the Jewish Messiah is instituting a new covenant, so we should expect that it won't be exactly the same. But the idea that ritual or sacrifice should simply cease is uh, uh, not what we receive from the apostles.
0: (laughs) There's so much to unpack in this, there really is, and we could talk about this for hours and hours. I mean, we haven't even touched on a lot of the, the things that are clearly present in the early church i mean there's things like relics and and prayers to the dead and prayers to the saints and the, and, and baptism you mentioned in passing is is a huge and undisputed uh, uh fact looming over the early church that what sure. baptism does right
1: yeah before you before you get lost in the weeds of any particular doctrine the best thing to do is just to sit down and absorb it all the fact that you're reading these words from the early centuries, and uh, uh, all of this stuff is there. So before you begin to engage with or argue with any individual passage, you need to be honest with yourself and say, this is a large body of material that says a lot of things I disagree with. So what does that mean? You know, I, I sometimes when I'm engaged with uh, evangelical inquirers, who are friends of mine, and I don't have to worry about... Uh, uh, too much about uh, uh, hurting their feelings. I tell them, uh, which of the early fathers, after you've become aware of some of the early fathers and what they said and what they did, which of them would you accept as a Sunday school teacher at your church? Name one early church father that would be acceptable as a pastor or a uh, Bible teacher at your in your denomination or at your local church. Pick one. Yes, they all say many things that sound evangelical from time to time. That's because evangelicalism is contained within Catholicism. Evangelicalism is an abridgment of Catholicism. So yes, the early fathers very often say things that are perfectly acceptable at one of today's evangelical churches. But they also say lots of things that aren't acceptable at today's evangelical churches. And I'm challenging you to find one of them who not only says the evangelical things, but also doesn't say the Catholic things, because that's that would get you thrown out of an evangelical church. So pick one. And if you can't, in other words, if you can't find an early father who doesn't say disqualifying Catholic-sounding stuff, what does that say about your church? In other words, if none of these early teachers would be acceptable to you, what does it say about your church? And you've got to answer without resorting to conspiracy (laughs) theories. In other words, without positing that there were evangelical fathers, but some nefarious uh, scheme uh, erased them from the record. Well, uh, you know. Like I say, we we need to leave. We need to wean ourselves off of these conspiracy theories because they're none of them are disprovable. <laughs> <laughs> and since none of them are disprovable, they all have to be discounted.
0: <laughs> That's so, a great point.
1: Yeah. So this is what I say. Without resorting to conspiracy theory, what does it say about your church that none of the great saints of the early centuries, before the Council of Nicaea, before Constantine, that none of them would be acceptable at your church. What does that say about your church? Hopefully, if you're a humble person, what it says to you is, I need to go back and rethink a few things. Maybe I'm nothing personal, but maybe I missed a step somewhere. That's all we're asking. <laughs> go back and consider the idea that maybe you missed a couple of steps.
0: Rod as always and of course that's that's so well said. I had one more question for you but I'm going to leave it right there cuz it's just too perfect. To, well to, we'll just perfect.
1: have we'll just have to do it again another time. <laughs>
0: That sounds fantastic. Uh, Roger, books are available on Amazon and everywhere fine books are sold. Is there anywhere else you want to point listeners to, to to get more of your stuff or hear more from you?
1: Well, I will, since you mentioned it, I will do a little plug for Four More Witnesses, which is the sequel to my original book, which is 20 years old next year. And uh, Ignatius Press is publishing a follow up, and uh, they, we're in the final editing process on it now. Probably will come out uh, in the fall of next year. So uh, four more witnesses from Ignatius Press, so be on the lookout. If you haven't read the original four witnesses, you might get that from (laughs) Ignatius.com.
0: I don't know who hasn't read that yet, Rod. Let's be honest.
1: Well, <laughs> I wish that were more true than it is. <laughs> Family finances would be in, in better shape if uh, if everybody had read it.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we'll send a few more your way, Rod. Hey, thank you so I much for being it. here. It's always an absolute pleasure. I want to say uh, God bless you. God bless the fantastic work you're doing for the church. And and thank you so much, truly, for uh, this conversation. Thank you, Rod.
1: Thank you for the invites. It's always a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rod Bennett. Hopefully you enjoyed that little challenging question at the end. I love how Rod put that so well. I had more questions prepared to ask him, but I wanted to end it Right there. It was a great place, I think, to end that conversation. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website for show notes for my blog, and articles I've written and am writing, and all the past episodes of this show as well. At Cordial Catholic on Twitter, TheCordialCatholic on Facebook, and send your emails, your feedback to CordialCatholic at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, who you are, where you're listening from, and why why you keep on listening. I write back to all those emails as soon as I can and love hearing from you guys. So thank you. CordialCatholic at gmail.com Please follow or subscribe to the show wherever you find it. Uh, Please tell a friend. Leave a rating and a review if you can. Those really help to push this podcast out to new people. I'm very grateful for all those ratings and reviews that have come in so far. And please do take just a few minutes and leave a rating or review if you can in the Apple Podcasts app. I'd really appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Patreon.com slash or PayPal.me slash to support this show. That money goes right back into the show to keep this thing going and growing and pay for hosting fees and equipment costs and all those fun kinds of things. This is not my full-time job, so all that money helps me to be able to do this in the first place. So thanks guys. Please know that I'm praying for you. Please pray for me too. And I'll talk to you again next week, guys. Thanks for listening. And God bless.